Our gospel reading continues in the following verses. While the previously read section is unequivocally a parable told by Jesus, most scholars agree that these verses, 8b through 13, are likely the writer's commentary on the parable and attempt to help his hearers make sense of the story Jesus told. This is the Holy Gospel according to Luke, the 16th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Here is the reading. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in a very little is faithful also in much. And whoever is dishonest in a very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Okay, how many of you have been to a country where they drive on the left side of the road? Oh, a bunch. So here, obviously, we drive on the right side. Uh, other countries sometimes drive on the left. Um, have any of you ever driven in a country where they drive on the left side of the Really? Lovely. Well, thank you guys for setting this story up so well. Okay, so here, obviously, we drive on the right side of the road. This supposedly goes back to, like, ancient Rome when Romans would drive their chariots and carts with their left hand so that the right hand was free to do what? Pull out weapons and attack enemies. So then this practice was carried over into medieval Europe. And then, finally, the British government in 1773 passed measures to make left-sided traffic the law of the land. Now, right-side traffic supposedly emerged in post-revolution France, Napoleon was supposedly left-handed and found that riding on the right was a very effective and intimidating military technique, not to mention the powerful symbolism of like literally reversing the current world order. So thus arose left-side driving in Britain, right-side driving in France. Both of these places passed their driving practices on to their colonies, which is why many former British territories are among the few modern countries that still use left-side driving. Now, over the 20th century, a lot of countries switched from driving on the left to driving on the right. Uh, as of now, there's about 76 countries and territories that still drive on the left, but in all of that time, only one place has ever switched from driving on the right to driving on the left. For a bonus point and a gold star, can anybody name this country? And that's a hint. It is actually a country, not a territory. The island nation of Samoa changed pretty recently, actually. They changed in 2009. They switched from driving on the right to driving on the left. So they were the first country to switch since the 1970s, and like I said, the only one to ever switch from right to left. So on Tuesday morning, September 8th, 2009, 6 a.m. local time, sirens go off across Samoa, traffic everywhere is stopped, and drivers are told to switch directions. Now, to prepare for this transition, 
They declared a two-day holiday so that there was less traffic on the roads when this happened. They also imposed a three-day ban on the sale of alcohol to cut down on accidents. They posted emergency vehicles and government officials at every junction and corner, and supposedly this entire transition went smoothly and went off without a hitch. Now, why did the country of Samoa switch sides? Well, a couple reasons that people mentioned. One obvious reason was to come in line with many of their Pacific neighbors who still drive on the left side. That kind of makes sense. Another more interesting reason was to decrease their dependence on expensive car imports from the United States. <laughs> I think it was the hope, and I don't know if this panned out, but the hope was that Samoan expats in Australia and New Zealand would ship more affordable used cars back to their homeland. If anyone wants to uh, investigate how that turned out for Samoa and let me know next week, that would be great. I don't know. But why am I telling you all of this? To stall, of course, to avoid as long as possible needing to dive into what author Phyllis Tickle called the most difficult parable of them all. Are you guys ready to talk about our gospel? Okay, I'm not, though, so let's talk about something else. We're going to talk about Rosalind Franklin. Rosalind Franklin is the best scientist that you have never heard of, or have you? Wow, bonus point, Deb. So, Rosalind Franklin, she was a brilliant chemist and a master of X-ray crystallography, which is an imaging technique used to reveal the molecular structure of matter. Now, she was studying, um, doing research at King's College London in the 1950s when she captured, do you know all of this? Good, okay, great. Phew. When she captured, I was so proud of myself, she captured what's called Photograph 51, which was at the time the best image ever captured of a molecule of DNA. And along with data, that suggested the as yet undiscovered double helix structure of DNA molecules. So a colleague of Miss Franklin showed photograph 51 along with her as yet unpublished data to three male scientists named Watson, Crick, and Wilkins. And these three gentlemen went on in 1962 to win a Nobel Prize for describing the double helix structure of DNA, arguably the most important scientific discovery of the 20th century. Rosalind Franklin's name was not mentioned at all, arguably the greatest scientific snub of the 20th century. So when this happens, she leaves King's College, she leaves the field of X-ray crystallography completely, goes somewhere else and spends the rest of her sadly shortened career um, studying and then discovering the structure of the tobacco mosaic parasite before she dies at age 37 from a cancer that was probably caused by all that exposure to x-rays. So it's kind of a depressing story, and she is now mostly remembered for how forgotten she was. But why does she switch fields? Why does she do that? Was it like giving up? Was it maybe even kind of sulking after her research is stolen? Or was it a brave and courageous transformation and restart after a massively unfair setback? 
<laughs> Thank you, Finn. Yay, indeed. All right, now are you ready to talk about our gospel? Okay, well, the long story short is that no one can agree what Jesus wanted us to take out of this parable. And more specifically, no one can agree on the intentions of this shrewd manager who is the main character. So is he a hero or is he a villain? Is he somebody who had a change of heart and saw the error of his ways? Or is he somebody who was trying to save his own skin? So here's what's happening at the time. So at this time in uh, Jesus' world, wealthy people often made a lot of their money as like essentially real estate investors. So the richer people in the country all lived in the southern part of the country along the coast, and a lot of them owned farms up in the north where people grew like wheat and olives and vineyards for wine and stuff like that. So it's essentially like a, a tenant farmer system. And um, in this system, the managers, they're like middle class, right? So they depend on the profits of these absentee landowners trickling down to them. So the farmers grow their crops, and then the managers take most of the profits and pass it on to the landowner, and then they take a cut for themselves, and then whatever's left over is what the farmers have to live on. So this, like, grossly unfair system, right? And then this particular landowner gets angry because he thinks that this manager is mismanaging his estate. So he thinks that he's not squeezing enough profit out of it. He's not working these farmers hard enough. And so he calls them and he tells them that he's going to fire him, right? And you heard what happens next. The manager goes to everybody who owes the landowner money and reduces all the debts. So he essentially takes what would have been his portion of the profit and gives it back to the people on the bottom. Now, why does he do this? Well, here's one way you could tell it. The manager has a change of heart. When he is so callously treated by this landowner who's willing to dismiss him based on nothing more than rumor, he realizes that he means nothing to this guy. And then he realizes that the people below him must feel the same way about him. That just as... He, he has been using and abusing the people below him just as the landowner has been using and now abusing him. And so he has a change of heart. He decides to step off the treadmill, get out of this unjust system for good. And as he does, he gives away what would have been his own gains and gives it away to the people from whom so much had already been taken. That would be cool if that was the story. And maybe it is, and that would maybe be Jesus talking to any of us who find ourselves knowingly or not in some kind of unjust system to do the same thing. Well, there's also another way you could tell the story, which is you could tell us something like this. When this manager learns that he's going to be fired, he goes, shoot, I'm about to find myself out on the streets. Is there anything I can do? to preserve and protect my power and position. Do I have any cards left to play at all? Just this one. I can go and reduce the debts of everybody who is indebted to my master, and in doing so, they will become indebted to me. And then I can cash in those favors one by one to keep myself afloat after this happens. 
And if that's the case, then this would be less a parable about a call to creatively and courageously dismantle the unjust systems of the world and more a parable that's just like a scathing, satirical critique of, like, humanity and the selfish quid pro quo ways that most of us function most of the time. Which is it? What do you guys think? Who thinks that the manner that the manager is, he's, he's been born again, he's had a change of heart, he's a reformed man and a hero? A few. Who thinks he's a scoundrel who's trying to save his own skin? Many more. Okay. I think I'm with you guys, but actually, I, I honestly, I don't think we can know, at least from this version of the story. And I don't think it matters because Whichever way you tell this story, there are a couple of things that stand out to me as, if not good news for us, at least something we're thinking about. And the first thing that I think is good news, if this passage has any good news, is that we have agency. We have the freedom to make our own choices. And to claim that is no small thing, especially in this world, in these Bible times, when so many of the other religions of the day, their worldview was like that humans are these helpless victims that are just helpless in the hands of these uncaring and capricious gods. So to claim that our God not only cares about us, but also gives us the power to chart our own course, that's a big deal. That's like a world-changing deal. Because in a world like that, we might not be able to control what happens to us, but we always can control how we respond. And in a world like that, every day contains a million opportunities to make choices that honor God and serve God's world, and a million opportunities for little successes and little failures. And that means that every time we do fail, another opportunity to make a new choice is waiting right around the That's good news, or <laughs> at least that's good news at days when we are feeling hopeful and energized and um, willing to get back up and take another whack at it. For the days when we're not feeling that, here's the other piece of good news from this story. Not only are we free to act, but God is free to act. God is not limited by our poor choices and ill intentions. No matter what we serve up, God can always find a way to turn it to the good. Who cares why the manager chose to give away all of that money? At the end of the day, people got it who really needed it. So, <laughs> when we are feeling stuck... May we remember our agency, our God-given ability to choose and to act. And may we use that freedom to make good choices, choices that honor God and reflect God's own traits of compassion and forgiveness and justice and generosity and unconditional love. And may we make choices like that, if not all the time, at least more often than not, more today than yesterday, more tomorrow than today. And when we fail to do that, oh, anytime we fail to do that, may we be able to witness 
our God in action, a God who is always and ever on our side.